Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. This is a special podcast episode in two ways. One, it is to mark the fact that 2020 is the year of the nurse, commemorating 200 years since the world's most famous nurse, Florence Nightingale, was born. Second, I am speaking to a wonderful King's College colleague, Anne-Marie Rafferty, who is a Professor of Nursing and President of the Royal College of Nursing in the UK. Anne-Marie, what does the year of the nurse mean to you? Well, firstly, Julia, I'd just like to say what a pleasure it is to be speaking with you this morning. And the year of the nurse, of course, means two things, I think. One is what it was going to mean before the pandemic. And secondly, what it means as a consequence of the pandemic. I think the first thing to say is that it was going to be a glorious year of celebration globally, not just in the UK as the epicentre of Florence Nightingale's influence and the kind of centrifugal point from which that influence was spun out to the rest of the world, but uh, across, across the world itself. And it was going to be marked specifically by the publication of a very special report, the State of the World's Nursing, and this was the first time that data had been collated from 183 countries across the world on the state of mainly the nursing workforce and a number of different elements of that. So it was a celebration. And in fact, Julia, you were going to be one of the keynote speakers at probably the largest gathering of nurses in London at the Excel Centre in the Docklands of London. So we were poised to celebrate, but also to really raise the profile of the profession and to use the State of the World's Nursing Report, which had the full backing of WHO and Nursing Now, which has been a global campaign to raise the profile of, of nursing itself, and indeed the International Council of Nurses. So these forces had joined very much together to begin a 
policy dialogue and the lobbying process, which was really designed to educate ministries of health, but also to draw in dialogue with other ministries who have an impact on the nursing workforce. And that includes ministries of labour, ministries of, of education, and of course, ministers of finance and chancellors of, of the exchequer. So this was intended originally to be a major celebration that would attract unprecedented media attention, but would also, and public support, but would also, uh, in doing so, provide a political platform for shifting the dial on a number of crucial policy parameters. That's what really was planned before we entered the era of the, of the pandemic. And so is there something a little bit uncanny in your view that instead of a big celebration of nursing, there's a major global pandemic, which is, of course, reminding us how vital nurses are to every community, to every nation. What's your understanding of how the profession's going in the face of this pandemic? What's it like for nurses around the world at the moment? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's paradoxical that the pandemic has actually brought about a sense of visibility for nurses in in quite an extraordinary and exquisite way. And it certainly has raised the media profile of the profession and public support, I think. But I think that visibility has had multiple facets to it in the sense that it's opened up, if you like, the black box of nursing, because I think the public perhaps doesn't have the sharpest, clearest understanding of what nurses actually do and made that really through daily newscasting and broadcasting of the crisis very much into the living rooms of citizens all over the world. And it's also opened up that space for other professions. I mean, doctors have been redeployed, some of them actually, to work as nurses. And they have expressed, I think, how impressed they've been with the expertise of nurses. I mean, obviously, the big ticket item here and their focus has been on intensive care. But of course, nurses work in many different settings and community care, mental health settings, and also care homes. So I I think really nursing has been on view as never before. And of course, our own Prime Minister has had an experience of being very ill with COVID and so firsthand direct contact with nurses whom he has, you know, praised in a magnificent and very generous way. Of course, we would love to see that fulsome praise converted into some kind of reward and recognition for nurses once the pandemic has ended, or at least entered what we suspect is going to be a more endemic phase. But in terms of the question of of what has it been like, I think it's been like nothing before. Nurses have really stepped up to the mark in terms of mobilising not just the 20,000 extra nurses who've come out of retirement to actually be redeployed into service, not just the students who've actually gone into work in placements up and down the country. Most people have had to do things that are way beyond their comfort zone and they've never really had to do before. We've had to build critical care capacity at pace and scale, 30,000 critical care beds. I mean, that's been like a kind of Olympic sprint exercise. And that's been accomplished because 
basically people have been willing to really put their shoulder to the wheel and go and work in areas, be trained where they haven't really worked before. And I think that's flexibility and that agility and adaptability that nurses and others have shown has been, you know, extraordinarily impressive. But of course, it's also taken a huge toll. We actually started the pandemic from a position of deficit with minus 40,000 nurses. That has not been the position of strength that we would otherwise have wished for in actually embarking on this pandemic. Absolutely. And I want to talk, Anne-Marie, now about your own journey into nursing to uncover some of the motivations that take people into nursing. You grew up in the coal fields of Fife, Scotland, and your father was a coal miner and your mother was a nurse, so it was in the family. Your family faced discrimination from an early age because of your Irish Catholic heritage. In fact, your father even dropped Rafferty from his surname and went by Smith to find employment opportunities. How did that affect you as a girl? And in what ways do you think gender affected how you were treated? How do you remember that in your childhood? Do you remember a moment when you first thought to yourself, gee, girls get treated differently to boys? I mean, I have to say that the sectarianism within Scottish society, not really something that's talked a lot about. And it wasn't talked a lot about in our family. But I think it signalled to me that there was a lot of prejudice. And in Scotland, the kind of mirror image of what was happening in Northern Ireland was being played out on the east and the west coast, particularly in in the west coast of, of Scotland. So I think I was aware of the way in which prejudice operated As Catholics, we went to separate school. We were very much a minority tradition. And I was told, you know, by my my dad that basically the main unions were dominated in Scotland by Protestants. And, you know, it was therefore quite difficult to get jobs in the 40s and, and and the 50s. So I think I was certainly aware of that status and standing and prejudice. I mean, as kids... It was somewhat jokingly said that we were all, you know, papes and Tims and Fenians. And, you know, these were used as as sort of taunts and, and slurs. But, I mean, most of my you know friends were, were from Protestant kind of background. But you were also aware of, of some sort of scepticism in, in even some of their parents. It was it was quite strange. But I think on the question of gender, I mean, I was actually a real tomboy when I was growing up. And it seemed to me, I was aware of my gender, that, gosh, the boys seemed to be having quite a lot of fun. And I definitely wanted, you know, a piece of the action. And so I used to romp around with the boys. And um, I felt I was quite well accepted by them, actually. And I was certainly accepted on the football pitch. And uh, football was something that I actually became pretty good at, even a lot better than some of the boys. And I, I kind of prided myself on that and of course football was something of the you know the connective tissue of conversation in our house I had two brothers my dad and that's how they related to each other so if you're going to get into the conversation you had to have something to do or say about football. And by the time you were a teenager was that sort of running its course though it was increasingly hard to be a tomboy increasingly hard to be on the football pitch? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, of course, that was a time when everyone was having boyfriends and you were one of the girls and with with, generally speaking, 
everyone was was experimenting with relationships, you know, in our adolescence. But I was aware of being gay from a very early age. And so I was really struggling with that, I think, as as I was growing up in my teens. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what it did to me, you know, psychologically, but I think it meant I, I had this kind of over-attachment or overzealous desire to be with my friends, to fit in and be like everyone else, when I knew, actually, I was carrying this very dark secret around inside me that, in fact, I, I was very different and, you know, a minority, as far as I could see, of one. And I certainly didn't want to be like that. I think even at, at one point, you know, I, I was saying Hail Marys, which seems a bit of a, a contradiction in terms, given the that record of the Catholics, uh, Catholic Church's attitude towards, you know, so-called homosexuality. But yeah, I, I, I was praying not to be gay, but there we are. That's really how it was. And against that background, you decided to study nursing at Edinburgh University. What inspired you to do that? I mean, obviously, it had been your mother's career too. Was it that? Was it a sense of family connection or was it something else? Well, I I don't think I was very clear about what I wanted to do until pretty late, you know, in school life. And I certainly wasn't the most well-behaved or studious pupil, far from it. I think this clamping to my friends meant I was basically homework, etc., was a bit alien to me. But I was inspired by my mum's stories of nursing in the Second World War in, in Scottish military hospital and her nursing of prisoners of war. And that fired my imagination both to nurse and her stories of being a fever nurse in particular, which is actually highly relevant to the COVID you know, crisis and that sense of history. So I think she sparked two things in me, you know, an interest in nursing and an interest in history. And there is a tradition of Scottish pupils going to their local university and mine just happened to be Edinburgh. Fortunately for me, it was actually the first in Europe to offer a degree in nursing. And I think I'd seen my brother. He was the first in our family to go to university. His experience of university, and it seemed to be all about having a great time and party. So I thought, hey, social life, here we come, Edinburgh, Shazam, that's for me. I didn't really think very much about, you know, the hard work that it was going to entail. It was, you know, a lifelong or at least a a four and a half years of of parting that seemed much more alluring. (laughs) Now, I think we just should dig a little into that transition of nursing into being a university qualification, because it certainly meant for you that you were amongst the first in the UK to study nursing at university. And back then, the usual way of studying nursing was more like an apprenticeship. You would be working on the wards and gaining work experience and then becoming more skilled and ultimately more senior. Apart from the potential allure of the Edinburgh University parties, what do you think that meant for nursing, that it became a university qualification? And did it make it a more attractive pathway for you in a substantive sense? Did you think that it was more of a profession, more of a career because it had a university qualification attached to it? Yeah, definitely. I thought it would enhance the status of what nursing was about. Indeed, you know, add some a scientific kind of basis and grounding in, in knowledge and research 
to what nurses did and sort of bring it out of the, the shadows of science into the centre of where science was being generated. And I was very much attracted to the research from an early stage within the university itself, because we were lucky it had one of the first research units for, for nurses. So I think it was the capacity to both gain a practical qualification and gain a degree, which seemed like a good double ticket to actually getting a job at the end of, of training. But I mean, having that university experience and as I got into it, being able to see what the potentiality was to develop nursing as, as a science and as an intellectual discipline on a par with any other, um, that was very, very appealing. You didn't just study at Edinburgh, you also studied at Nottingham University. And then you've said, and I'm quoting here, that you were bitten by the research bug and you switched to study a history PhD at Oxford, becoming the first nurse to gain a doctorate from that university. Now, why history? That would seem to many people like a pretty big leap from the intellectual but also practical profession of nursing into studying history? Yeah, it does seem like a, a bit of a jump, Julia. I, I do admit that. But I I was fascinated by these issues of boundary and what I guess is the sociology of knowledge and the relationship between knowledge and power. And I thought, well, if nurses can get their hands on more knowledge, that can enhance the power base. And that seemed to me the only game in town and the only way to go But to really understand those power dynamics, I thought that I needed to understand history. And, you know, I I was really interested in it. And I was very, very fortunate that I was accepted to do this by, you know, a supervisor who, Charles Webster, who's the official historian of the National Health Service. I mean, who was very generous and took a risk with someone who really didn't have an undergraduate history degree. And uh, he was, you know, I think, had a very open mind and quite left wing in in his thinking. And I think, you know, he thought, yeah, let's have one for the nurses here. And, you know, history of medicine was dominated by, by doctors. And it's important to have the nursing story told. And looking at those power dynamics in the medical settings, You wanted to study those, you wanted to study the history, you wanted to see how those power dynamics had come about. At this stage when you were studying history, were you alive to the gender dynamic that, you know, disproportionately nurses were women, disproportionately doctors, particularly supervising doctors, were men? Yes, very much so. I mean, both as, you know, first-hand experience, but also in the literature, there was beginning to emerge a a trickle of feminist studies of of nursing, some of which had a more historical bent to them. And, you know, talking about the way in which the power relations between doctors and nurses, how they played out, replicated patriarchal relationships from the home. So, you know, the doctor was a stand-in for the husband or the father, and the nurse was a stand-in really for the mother and the wife and, and nurse, and that these relationships were almost translocated from the domestic into the, the public sphere, from the private to the public sphere. So that seemed to me really a very seductive way of explaining and understanding why things were the way that they were. And I think there was a little gritty bit in me that wanted to disrupt that and challenge it and, you know, 
break it apart. And so the way that I saw of, of doing that was partly trying to use my brain and develop evidence and argument in order to really mount some kind of critique and hopefully from that critique change. And all of this study and learning um, has had a through line to what you're doing now as the Professor of Nursing Policy at King's College London, where, of course, you do the work of the university, which uh, educates so many nurses, but you also influence uh, various government decisions about healthcare policy. But you've also taken on the role of President of the Royal College of Nursing, What are you hoping to achieve through that role? And what would you describe as your style of leadership while you do it? Well, I I campaigned mainly on a ticket of safe staffing and trying to leverage staffing legislation in line with legislation that was being uh, laid down in Scotland and already had been accomplished in Wales. You'll be pleased to know that, Julia, that Wales was the first in order to to achieve that in the UK. So trying to do that for England was a major part of my lobbying platform. But of course, COVID has actually put the stops on the legislative agenda on staffing at the moment, although actually now that's beginning because of all of the staffing dynamics, which we've seen in terms of nurses being redeployed, the dealing with the shortages in, in key areas, means that we really have got to uh, redouble our efforts, actually, to ensure that we do carry out not only the state of the world's nursing recommendations, which is mass investment in education, not just at the, at the pre-registration student level, but also throughout the careers for nursing. And I think there needs to be a clear settlement and entitlement of what that actually actually means. I would like to see personally also regulation of advanced practice, which gives the strength of leadership at the top, which we are really lacking. And I think there simply aren't enough senior leaders in nursing to give it the strength of support for others coming through. And that, I think, is a major driver of so-called attrition, one of the reasons why people actually leave. And then leadership, investment in leadership. And of course, it'd be great to talk to the Global Institute more about how we actually do that. But leadership at every level has to be distributed. And that's, I think, you know, those three prongs also fit, you know, they are the building blocks for the build back better kind of strategy that we need to put in place. And so, I mean, much of what I've been doing since COVID has been trying to support members in whole variety of different different ways rather than focusing on the legislative agenda which is really what I set out to try and do but that's coming so watch that space and just digging I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Into a few of the issues in nursing today with you doing so much reform work. 
Looking at the stereotyping of nursing still, I mean, we still see a profession that, for example, in England is 90% women. Do you think it would be a very changed world if that was 50-50, men and women? Would we think radically differently about the status of nursing if it was no longer associated in people's minds as sort of women's work but was a profession that was engaged in in a gender-equal split? And this is where history is helpful, Julia, because part of the historical project, if you like, and the early reform of nursing was feminising nursing. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a, a job that was only done by women. I mean, if you went, you were in the army, there were lots of male attendants who did things that would become similar to what nurses subsequently did. So I don't think that there's anything intrinsically essentialist about nursing at all. But I think to get a 50-50 split in nursing, you would have to raise that pay and can improve conditions for nurses quite significantly before men would be prepared to come in. And of course, we see many men are a disproportionate number of men reaching leadership positions within the profession of that 10% who do, who do come in. They tend to strive to run up the ladder and, and get into the better paid positions. So, I mean, pay and conditions and creating decent jobs is definitely, you know, part of the Build Back Better strategy. We've just been discussing pay very, very recently. I mean, that's more of a slow burn thing, but I sincerely hope that we are going to see a, a significant stretch and improvement in the pay and working conditions of nurses after COVID. Yeah, the gender pay gap in nursing is really intriguing, isn't it? Because uh, for such a female-dominated profession, women are still disadvantaged because studies have shown that even though men are only 11.3% of the workforce, on average they earn more than the rest of the workforce. So even in a highly feminised profession, the men who are there end up earning more People would find that a pretty disheartening statistic, I suspect. How do you think about that? You know, I think uh, many people who, when they conceptualise the gender pay gap, would say, well, it's in industries where men and women, they're doing work and women aren't getting as valued as the men, but they would assume to themselves that heavily female-dominated professions don't have this kind of gender pay gap, yet there it is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a different way in which men and women value themselves or feel able to ask. I mean, this whole business of actually asking for a raise or going into a job and negotiating a higher salary, that's not, the, that's not often the way for nurses going in and thinking that you can actually negotiate your way into a grade. But I, I, I think that, that men do have that greater sense of entitlement and there's no doubt that they do rise up the ranks more rapidly. I mean, there's been research since the 1980s that's demonstrated that. And in fact, one of my former tutors from Edinburgh did a thesis in which she demonstrated that uh, women, although they were actually better qualified than many of the men who were rising up the ranks, were slowed up by a syndrome which she called the lateral movement syndrome, that they felt they had to keep acquiring more and more qualifications before they then rose up the ranks whereas men just cut through that and they just want to exercise their leadership 
more, more rapidly, they have that greater sense of confidence and entitlement. It's something that needs to be kind of dug into, I think. And maybe some of these dynamics are played out in terms of, you know, if there is a, a promotion going, women would just automatically hold themselves back and actually actively promote men. I mean, I've heard men saying that they get an easier ride in practice than many of their peer, you know, their female peers in nursing. And, you know, you can see the frisson and flirtation with perhaps the senior nurse, female nurse leader and a, and, and a male nurse that had kind of banter, et cetera, that you, you don't perhaps have gender politics are working out in, in unexpected and quite subtle, I think, in sophisticated ways. And we probably need to dig into that more, more deeply. And a startling statistic about the profession today, I certainly was surprised by this, is that when nursing staff are surveyed, they are less likely now to recommend nursing as a career to another person than any point in the last 10 years. Just 41% say that they would recommend nursing as a career, yet we face a shortage of 6 million nurses worldwide. So here we are recording this podcast still during the days of the pandemic and in a pandemic we know we need nurses, we're saying we value our nurses, yet globally we are 6 million nurses short. How do we solve a problem as big as that? I think that's a creed to occur, Julia. I mean, it is, and it's also a warning, actually. I think that for too long, to be quite frank, We have taken nurses and a future in which there will be nurses simply for granted. You know, much in the way in which people say women's labour in the home is taken for granted. We cannot rely on that in the future. And I think this is a warning sign. And it's a wake up call for governments and the ministries that I mentioned before, not just in health, across the piece to actually take nursing seriously. It's now a graduate profession, but it's not paid as a graduate profession. A survey we did across Europe demonstrated that a number of countries' nurses' salaries are still below the average wage for that country. That's unacceptable, given the complexity, the acuity, the conditions under which people have been working. And I think those have been extraordinarily stressful and distressing. We know that we're involved in a study at the moment. We know that from past pandemics and epidemics, significant proportion of nurses go on to develop PTSD. In our survey, the ICON survey, which is a collaborative venture with a number of universities and the Royal College of Nursing Research Society, we are seeing about 25% of our sample and respondents actually saying that they have quite severe depression and they're feeling distressed, quite severe dis- levels of distress. So I, I think the mental health issues as well as just the physical conditions, can you imagine spending 12 hours in PPE, you know, not actually being able to communicate very effectively with your, your patients or indeed your colleagues because there's so many barriers visually and acoustically to doing so. It's very hot in there. And it's just deeply uncomfortable. Of course, there's a lot of support has been put in place to try and help that. And I'm really pleased that well-being is now at the top of the agenda, as it's never been before. But we need to make that a priority. So it's not just the choice of recommending it moving forward. It's actually the 
mental health tsunami that we are going to see moving forward, and we are already seeing signs of now, which means that nurses are simply not going to be there in the numbers in which they have in the past. That's why we need improvements across the board. You know, we need this mass investment in education. We need to create decent working conditions, jobs, including promotion prospects, allowing people to progress rapidly in their careers, a good career structure, pay, of course, that needs to be hiked up, and staffing levels, because those have also been eroded, as we know, even in intensive care. We've heard a lot about those ratios of one to one being reduced to one to three, in some cases, one to six patients. We cannot allow that to prevail post-pandemic. And leadership at every level, and especially in those more advanced roles, there's lots of evidence that demonstrates that nurses are not being able to actually work at the top of their license and the top of their game. Their full, even their full potential is not actually being able to be expressed in the workplace. And that's a function of management and leadership, and that has definitely got to change. I always conclude these podcasts with a series of featured questions, the first of which is a fact for my guests to respond to. And the fact I'm going to put to you comes from the Royal College of Nursing Employment Survey in 2017, and it says one in three nursing staff say that they have experienced bullying or harassment from colleagues in the last 12 months with black African-Caribbean staff and nursing staff with disabilities more likely to report this than other staff. What's your reaction to that? I wonder, Julia, whether that's part of what we were discussing earlier on of being a minority and being othered. Bullying involves subtle tactics of exclusion and putting pressure on people to do things that they feel uncomfortable with. And I've actually been bullied myself, so I, I know what it feels like in the workplace. And it is absolutely reprehensible. It has untold, does untold damage to the psyches. It scars the psyches of the people concerned. And I think we know there's evidence that people from Black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds don't feel they've got the same freedom to raise concerns or, or speak up because they don't have that same level of support and solidarity in the workplace, and this is now being seriously tackled. And there's going to be a health observatory on this. There's inquiries going forward. We don't need more research. We need action now on this by government, not another review. Actually, it's one of the most, I think, pressing problems and challenges within our, within our health service and in the social care sector, of course, as well, which is even bigger than the health sector. I think we've got to have a reset with Black Lives Matter. We're learning. We have to learn. We have to be educated about how to tackle this problem. But we have to demonstrate the political will to take it seriously and really do it at pace. And I think the people who are impacted by this have to be in absolutely front and centre in crafting the solutions. And I've learned a lot from my colleagues from Black and minority backgrounds at the Royal College of Nursing and elsewhere, they are the ones who are educating and, and teaching me. And I'm fully supportive of the seriousness with, with which this is being taken. But now we absolutely need action. But those same nurses need to be in the vanguard of designing those interventions and what that action should actually be. 
Speaking personally, what's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Well, I think one of the most difficult things, and it's probably slightly amplified or has a different spin in a feminised profession, I still think that nurses are not taken seriously as experts. You don't see nurses on the scientific advisory group on epidemics, which is the major committee which is advising government on COVID. Of course, as Margaret Thatcher says, you know, advisors advise and politicians make decisions. And ultimately, those are political decisions. But the infusion of scientific expertise is missing nursing at the highest level. Nursing through the chief nursing officer is feeding in at the second tier level. And it's very interesting as well, Juliet, that actually the chief nursing officer is of a different civil service ranking to the chief medical officer. She is a rank below. And, you know, that's been the case since the inception of the National Health Service. And that actually shouldn't be the case. I would wager that if you had practical nurses who are experts in infection control with that frontline experience, I am positive that we wouldn't be in the pickle that we're currently actually in because they would be bringing that expertise on how to manage in a whole variety of different settings, not just hospitals, but but care homes. And the community, of course, which has been really, really hard hit by the deficiencies and lack of PPE, especially, that would make a difference to the quality of the policymaking. And I think as a first professor of nursing policy in the country, that's why I wanted that title, really, because it was making a point about nurses being involved in policymaking. We're often seen as, as basically doers rather than thinkers and deliverers rather than designers of policy. We need many more nurses actually at the top table designing policy in the first place rather than having to find workarounds in its implementations. If you were all powerful and could change one thing for women, what would it be? I think it would be education and insisting on mandatory education for all women globally, high, medium, low-income countries, until they were 18. And the reason I say that is because we know from evidence that women's education has a multiplier effect on communities. It improves health literacy, for example, which in itself translates into higher productivity and wealth for a country. So I see women's education as being at the heart and centre of the recovery from this pandemic and laying down a legacy to sustain population growth and the health and wealth of nations across the globe. As chair of the Global Partnership for Education, I'm going to say absolutely agree with that. Virginia Woolf says... Among your grandmothers and great-grandmothers, there are many that wept their eyes out. Florence Nightingale shrieked aloud in her agony. Anne-Marie Rafferty says... Well, I think what Virginia Woolf was alluding to there is frustration at the pace of change. I agree. It's far too slow. I think we need to build a social movement of nurses to actually bring about a better future. And I think that Florence Nightingale was a classic case of 
impatience and the embodiment of intolerance for inaction. I think she would have been beating a hasty path to number 10, hammering on the door, insisting that she took charge of the current pandemic and was calling the shots. And I'm sure that her skills in logistics would have meant that we would be in not least infection control and designing the Nightingale hospitals up and down the country, iconically named in honour to her reputation, that actually we would be in a much better place if Florence Nightingale was taking charge. And we need that spirit of defiance. Nurses need to be more defiant and taking leadership themselves, not waiting for permission. And I'm sure building on that spirit, we will build a better future for our populations, both nationally and globally. What a wonderful image to end on. And Marie Rafferty, thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.